This week, comparing across cancers could help us understand them better. Thinking about cancer types as equivalent to different species helps us understand how cancers originate, how they progress, to help us treat them. And does a high-impact paper really change a scientist's life? Nature and science get things wrong from time to time. Every so often they pick a turkey or they publish something that turns out to be manifestly poor science. Plus, we piece together the nervous system of an ancient arthropod. This is the Nature Podcast for the 17th of October 2013. I'm Kerry Smith. No two cancers are the same. That much became clear to scientists as soon as they started work on the genomes of cells from different cancer types. There's a list of mutations that can increase someone's likelihood of breast cancer, for example, and scientists know a lot about how tobacco smoking mutates genes in the lung. But is there anything that all cancers have in common? And if so, could scientists use knowledge of these common themes to treat or prevent multiple cancer types? Finding out is one of the goals of the Cancer Genome Atlas project. They published a suite of papers this week, including one in Nature and a few more in Nature Genetics. Nature's genetics and genomics editor Magdalena Skipper joins me in the studio to unpack the new results. First, Magdalena, what's been the run-up to these findings? Until recently, most studies have focused on individual cancer types. Um, The Cancer Genome Atlas Consortium themselves have published a number of impressive papers, each of which focused on an individual cancer, but then looked beyond the genome to look at the transcriptome, so what types of genes were transcribed and expressed in a given cancer type. They have looked at epigenetic modifications to understand the layers that um, are superimposed on top of the genome in each individual cancer. But now, um, armed with so much data, they have decided to launch a pan-cancer initiative. And so the principle here is to apply really quite well-established principles of comparative genomics. So take those data sets from individual cancers and compare them across cancer types. You say comparative genomics. Nature in the past has published lots of this stuff. So human versus gorilla versus chimp genomes. And here we have essentially different species of cancer genome being compared. Exactly. This this comparison, um, thinking about cancer types as equivalent to different species and using principles of evolutionary biology and population biology or evolutionary genetics and population genetics is actually an emerging theme in, in cancer biology, uh, which helps us understand how cancers originate, how they progress to help us treat them. Now, This is a way of looking at, at, as you said, multiple cancer types. What themes do seem to be emerging when people are comparing all these different species of cancer? In this particular effort, the Pan-Cancer Consortium have looked at 12 different cancers. And so, for example, in the Nature paper by Li Ding uh, and colleagues, the, the authors have looked at point mutations and small insertion deletions that affect only a couple of nucleotides at a time. And certain themes come out from that investigation, uh, such as, for example, they are able to identify um, around 130 significantly mutated genes, which affect tumor biology, but now right across different tumor types. So just the reminder that now we're not looking at a single cancer, but all different cancer types. And some of these presumably are not surprising because they're genes that we already know to be implicated in multiple cancers. The gene P53, I suppose, comes up as one of those 130-odd That's right. But there are some other interesting insights in terms of um, biology. For example, we've been getting hints 
from previous analyses, individual cancer analyses, that um, mutations in genes that affect uh, chromatin play an important role in cancer. And indeed, this is, this is something that is emerging very strongly as a theme from this pan-cancer comparison. So just remind us what chromatin is. So chromatin is the assemblage of DNA and proteins that, around which this DNA is wrapped up. So it's the structure within the nucleus in which DNA is contained. So mutations have been found then in this study by Ding et al. Uh, in chromatin and in, in lots of other cancer genes that were not as surprising. Um, but in a, in a different paper that's quite complementary in Nature Genetics, a different team looked at the, the sort of structure of, of the genome and mutations that have to do with that. That's right. So there, the team led by Ramin Barukin um, looked at structural variants in the genome, whole genome duplications, big structural rearrangements, and they find as many as 37% of tumor types carry whole genome duplications. That's actually quite a striking number, something we did not appreciate before. Now, it's not just the pan-cancer team, the Cancer Genome Atlas team, doing this kind of comparative effort. A team led by Mike Stratton at the Sanger Centre in Cambridge have also been comparing different cancers. And, and how have they done it? How is their approach complementary? So their approach has been to take 7,000 cancers of 30 different classes and look at mutation signatures. And what these mutation signatures are going to tell us is they're going to tell us about the biological processes that create these mutations and thereby lead to carcinogenesis and tumor development. So, for example, um, we already know that um, certain carcinogens in tobacco cause particular mutational signatures in the lung. And similarly, UV causes very particular signatures in the skin when you look at melanoma. What Stratton and colleagues have done is identify um, new uh, signatures. Some of them are associated, for example, with age or diagnosis. Others are associated with defects in DNA repair. Eventually, are there ways in which knowledge like this could help us treat cancers better, even prevent them? Absolutely. Amongst the findings are clear-cut potential targets for therapy, therapy which, on the one hand, might be restricted to individual cancers, but some of these um, results that come up from pan-cancer analysis actually point to specific processes that can be targeted across different cancer types. Similarly, for example, in the um, Nature paper by Ding and colleagues, what really emerges right across the the different cancers is that knowing um, the clonal architecture, so how different subsets within a tumor develop and and accumulate mutations, can help uh, or should help devise tailor-made treatment for individual patients. Okay, Magdalena Skipper, thank you so much for coming in. Those papers can be found, the Ding paper, on the Nature website, nature.com slash nature, as is the Stratton paper we mentioned, and a collection of other papers, nature.com slash ng for nature genetics. Still to come in the research highlights, a factory popping out pills with ease and freezing cold turtles. But first, to understand the diversity of modern life, scientists have long delved into the fossil record. One of the most diverse groups of creatures is the arthropods, the lineage which includes insects, crustaceans and all manner of other creepy crawlies. Recently, our understanding of these creatures' early evolution is being advanced by an area we could call neuropaleontology, that is, the study of ancient nervous systems. Noah Baker has been finding out more. Some of the oldest known arthropod fossils come from the Cambrian period, over 500 million years ago. Xiaoya Ma from the Natural History Museum in London has been looking at fossils like this, 
from a particularly special site in China. I'm looking at the、uh, fossil materials from southwest China. One of the oldest fossil assemblage in the world. Then they have a huge amount of like a, a different diversity group of animals. They also have a very exceptional soft body preservation. They are quite world famous. These Chinese rocks have turned out some amazing finds. Last year on the podcast, we heard from Greg Edgecombe, who worked with Xiaoya on a species found in these rocks called Fushinhua. Well, what we were working on here is an exceptionally preserved arthropod from very early in the fossil record of animals, and the fossil we're working with here is something that you almost never get in fossils of this age, and this is the preservation of neural tissue. We're seeing the outline of the brain、uh, in one particularly fine specimen, and we're seeing some of the neural tissue inside the eyes as well. Now, Greg and Xiaoya have turned their attention to another fossil from the same rocks. A species from a now extinct group, the Great Appendage Arthropods. Great Appendage Arthropod are、uh, a group of extinct arthropods from the Cambrian rocks. So they can be found in China, in Canada, in Australia. But of course, the name is really deriving from their first、uh, pair of head appendage, which is comparably much larger than the uh, other uh, appendages of the animal. The new specimen is called Alalcomaneus, and again, the team were interested in its nervous system. One year on from the description of Funshinhua, and the team are using techniques not that dissimilar from modern brain scanners. This particular specimen we're studying, we're using some very new imaging technique, almost like X-ray scanning, like a medical CAT scan almost, and we revealed some detailed structure as a three-dimensional information. And all this information get together help us restore the whole central nervous system of this animal, and the, this is the most complete、uh, central nervous system we know from any animals from the Cambrian period. This information help us to resolve this animal's phylogenetic relationship. Where Alalcomaneus and other great appendage arthropods fit into the evolutionary tree has been up for some debate. There are two main groups: the mandibulata, insects and crustaceans, and the chelicerates, spiders, scorpions, and horseshoe crabs. The brain of Funshinhua indicates that it sits somewhere in the mandibulata. The brain of Funshinhua appears to correspond to what we thought was the more derived or advanced condition, as we see in insects or crustaceans. But until now, scientists couldn't agree where to put great appendage arthropods like Alalcomaneus. Some thought they were early chelicerates. And now the neural structures suggest they were right, because、uh, we didn't know any neural structure about these sort of fossil arthropods before. So many paleontologists working on their external morphology, like appendages, already proposed the great appendage are、uh, related to the chelicerate. Our research provides entire novel data to back up this、uh, idea and to set any controversies. Neural structures of both Funshinhua and Alalcomaneus have provided a unique window into arthropod evolution. Arthropod is、uh, certainly the largest finder in animal kingdom. They have amazing diversity, but those diversity also gave us a lot of difficulty in terms of to understand their early evolution, because、uh, these appendages can be highly modified. Central nervous system is relatively stable through the evolutionary history, so that's why also make it very important to understand the central nervous system. Until very recently, we know almost nothing about the neural tissues from the fossil material. Until through this very very exceptional preserved 
fossils, they actually show us the neural information. But not only general neural information, they actually show us very detailed information, which we can do direct comparison with the modern taxa. Zhao Ya Ma from the Natural History Museum in London, ending that report from Noah. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. A new type of factory could speed up the production of drugs, saving the pharmaceutical industry time and money. Instead of spreading manufacturing over several locations, as normally happens, the new factory brings all parts of the process under one roof. Chemical building blocks flow in at one end, then the drug is made, crystallised, dried and coated in one continuous process, far more efficient than the traditional start-stop method. The factory, the first of its kind, produces a hypertension drug. You can read about it in Angavanta Chemi International Edition. Freshwater turtles can survive the winter at the bottom of frozen lakes, despite a complete lack of oxygen. But they do not, as some have suggested, fall into a coma. Researchers in Denmark submerge turtles in cold, oxygen-depleted water to put them into false hibernation. Surprisingly, the animals still responded to light and increased temperatures. This suggests that hibernating turtles are in a low-energy but vigilant state. Read more in Biology Letters. Many labs have a bottle of bubbly on standby for when their research is accepted by a top-tier journal. But apart from that extra glass of carver, does a publication in Nature or Science really affect your life? Jeff Marsh has been finding out. With journals like Nature and Science rejecting around 90% of their submissions, a publication in these premier titles, perhaps unsurprisingly, shines like a badge of honour on a scientist's CV. But are these publications unfairly weighted? Does where you publish matter more than what you publish, and how much of a problem is this? Stephen Curry, a structural biologist and enthusiastic blogger on such issues from Imperial College London, joins me now. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Jeff. Firstly then, as an active scientist yourself, what's been your experience with trying to publish in these top-tier journals? Uh, well, I think it's probably common with most people. I've had a go every now and then, but most times been knocked back without even the paper being sent out for review. I have published once in Nature, but it was 20 years ago and it was on a paper where I was very much a, a middle-ranking author. But I guess I knew as a young researcher back then that you know this was the game that I had to try and play if I wanted to get on in my career. And so for you, what was the result of that publication? Was it just more high fives amongst your colleagues or were there any real benefits? Well, you know, there's definitely a sense of kudos that comes from publishing such a, a high-ranking journal. But I don't think in my case it was make or break for my career. It does no harm. I was certainly glad to have that listed on my CV. But many of my other papers published around the same time were in more specialist journals. And um, I still managed to get a, a job. And I'm now working as a you know, professor of structural biology at Imperial College. So, you know, it's not, it's not make or break. What do you see as the dangers of this bias towards crediting publications in these top-tier journals? One is that it slows down the publication process because there's a very narrow door getting into nature and science and so there's a very big queue lining up behind it. And so 90% of the papers are rejected but those 90% of papers mostly will be very, very good work and it will eventually get published but it just means that having to go through the process of knocking on nature or science's door first means that you introduce a delay. And so it slows down 
the publication of science. It's also unfair because the threshold that Nature and Science operate publishing 10%, that's entirely artificial. You know, Nature and Science could easily publish probably 20, 25% of the manuscripts that they receive and there would be no appreciable drop in quality. And yet it's only those that make it through the door that earn the credit, earn the badge of an impact factor from Nature or Science. But the ones that haven't made it or have just had the door closed on them, they probably are palpably going to suffer in their careers. And that seems to me manifestly unfair. But isn't it right, though, that the most highly selective journals, I mean, we've we heard that Science and Nature, a lot of them reject 90% of their submissions. Isn't it right that a, a publication in one of these journals does deserve a bigger reward? Well, that presupposes that every paper that gets into Nature or Science is a big hitter, is a winner. But it simply isn't justifiable if you look at the numbers because many, many papers are published in Nature and Science that don't get very many citations or don't turn out to be the big game changer that they were thought to be when they were selected and sent out for review. So we have to acknowledge that you know Nature and Science get things wrong from time to time. Every so often they pick a turkey or they publish something that turns out to be manifestly poor science. You know the Arsenic Life paper in Science, just to cite one of the more famous examples, a piece of nonsense that any undergraduate could have told you was nonsense was published. And so the other thing to remember, of course, is that these general disciplinary journals, Nature and Science, they're not just judging on the quality of science. They are also looking for topicality, for newsworthiness. You know, is it sexy? These are also the criteria. And so are people just moaning about this or are there other people taking action to sort of change the status quo? Well, lots of people are moaning. That's certainly true. And I have moaned on my blog about it. But I think there is a lot of positive action coming out now. One of the positive things that's come out in recent months, in fact, is the Declaration on Research Assessment, which is an initiative that's come from a number of publishers and learned societies. And it's specifically targeted at getting people, funders and universities to avoid using impact factors in their assessment. And it recognizes that it has come to have undue influence in our the business of hiring new faculty, of promoting them and of determining whether or not to fund their grants. So you've talked there about better ways to assess the value of a paper once it's been published. Do you see there being any change to where young scientists try to publish? I think the rise of open access is creating new venues for people to publish in, and many of these have turned out to be of, I think, surprisingly good quality. Overall, the impact factor of PLOS is around four, which is actually very respectable given the breadth and the size of the journal. And I think that's taken a lot of people by surprise. The number of people I've met... I myself have done this in the past 12 months, who've published in PLOS One, um, it seems to be just rising and rising. They, they published over 25,000 papers last year. And I think that younger generation of scientists, they've grown up with the internet, they've grown up with digital publication, and they're much more friendly to it. But the trouble is, for them, they still feel that, well, I still need to publish in a top-tier journal if I want to make a success of it. And it certainly would not be fair to expect the younger generation of scientists to carry all the risks of breaking away from our addiction to impact factors. That was Imperial College's Stephen Curry talking to Jeff Marsh. And there's a feature on publishing in top-tier journals in this week's magazine, alongside a host of other articles on scientific impact. Check that out at nature.com nature. Finally this week, it's the News Chat and Chief News Editor David Ray joins me in the studio. First up this week, the obvious topic, uh, the shutdown of the US ongoing. Um, Thursday of this week, uh, the 17th, is likely to be the day that they, they cross over into sort of 
budget default unless something happens. David, what's the latest that you've got? Yeah, well, as you said, Kelly, I mean, this has been running off for about two weeks now. It looks like it could be coming to a bit of a head, finally. I think the American public will be more grateful than that than the scientists. But the impact for scientists has been bloody massive. And I think this week in our, in our piece, we analyse exactly, now that we know better what the fallout is, exactly how it's affecting them. And uh, one of our reporters went to the NIH labs uh, in Bethesda in Maryland to have a, have a look around there and see what was going on. Were there any lights still left on? And she found out that there weren't, to be honest. There was an absolute skeleton staff, most of whom were having to look after um, the, the cell lines and the live sort of organisms and the live, live lab tests that are going on, uh, and also a few sort of technicians and things about as well. But ultimately, you know, a sort of ghost ship, if you like. And, uh, and that is something that's being echoed in, in government labs across the states at the moment. The Antarctic, all the bases down there are in serious jeopardy at the moment, 1,500 scientists and technicians could well be called back, which would mean essentially the entire Antarctic season is lost, which would be a year's worth of data uh, from penguin counting to climate change data lost. And uh, that's quite a a sort of significant developing, not just for the Americans, but for the wider scientific community. Yeah, so there are international effects of the US shutdown, of course, as you would expect. Looking forward, um, we don't know what's going to happen on Thursday, of course, but what could be the future implications for science? There's obviously missing data sets already. The hangover is going to inevitably take a few days or weeks possibly to sort itself out and what happens after that is everyone's going to have to start checking okay what did we lose out on do we need to start commissioning new work to cover the the gaps that the the shutdown made Uh, so I think there's going to be an almighty picking up of pieces going on uh, once the the US government does agree the new budget and science can get back on, on a level footing. Are there hints of what the further future will be like? So obviously there's some tidying up to be done. There's this hangover, as you said. But if we look past that to what the budget might say for science in the future, uh, what's likely to be the outcome of that? Another good question. I think, I mean, the, the dangers of the US system means that something like this, of course, can happen every year and has happened in the past, as we've seen. So what will happen in the future? Will science a lobby sort of grow to ensure this doesn't happen next time or that they get some sort of exemption. Uh, it's, it's an unlikely possibility, but it, it's something that the science community will definitely be needing to think about. And the impetus of all this lost work will, will be enough to, to drive them into doing something, I'm sure. All right. So the shutdown leading to dark times, quite literally in the NIH labs that the reporters have been visiting. That story online, of course, accessible for free. Let's turn now to the other side of the pond, to France and to the ITER experiment, where construction has been delayed. Yeah, kind of echoes of the of the shutdown again here. Not quite the same kettle of fish, but uh, construction delays at, at ITER, which is a huge fusion project. Uh, the idea is that they, they can make energy, make electricity ideally out of fusion power. And that's within a sort of about a 15-year target they're looking at. 2028 is the day that'll happen, they think. Uh, so that they're aiming to get 10 times as much power out as they put in. They're a long way from that. And construction delays have meant that the research, which is a sort of step-by-step schedule to get to this main goal, is is out of kilter because of the, the delays. So they've uh, had a meeting this week uh, to discuss how they sort out their research programme. And what they've decided is uh, they want to entirely focus on the, the goal of generating power. And this means that a lot of research is going to be sidelined, some of the more sort of basic physics about research into fusion and, uh, and other things that they can use this enormous tokamak, which is the fusion you know, reactor they have. So uh, it's, they're trying to sell it as a kind of good news story in that we're still focused on, on getting to power generation. But I think a lot of research is going to be well, certainly delayed, if, if not passed over, on the way to get there. 
what, what's the nature of the delays? Is it just that they don't, you know, can't source enough construction workers or they don't have the science right to be able to build the equipment they need? What, what exactly is going on? Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, I think they've been a victim of, of uh, the cost cutting pretty much like everyone else has, I think. And that it's run by the EU and about six other countries, including China, Russia, France. And all of those countries are, are, are suffering sort of economic losses. So cost cutting is happening at the forefront of science. And the knock-on consequences of that is that ITA can't put together its, its tokamak and its fusion experiments as quickly as it would like to. All right, the perils of giant projects. Uh, and of course, one of the most giant we've covered in the previous couple of weeks, the IPCC has just released its latest report. And now a whole bunch of sociologists are going in to look at how exactly it's done that and what such a big organism, if you like, uh, looks like on the inside. You could say that how the monster works, I think, is the best way. So this is actually quite a, a really great story, actually. The IPCC has had an application from a bunch of ethnographers, uh, social scientists, to study the actual individual members and how they work together. So it's not about the work they're doing. It's not only about climate change. It's more about how so many people can come up with such a big uh, report, essentially, which is you know, possibly world-changing. Um, so these guys are going to go in, they're going to sort of watch them work together, how they talk, how they communicate. Uh, up to 200 members uh, need to be involved in this. So do they have any biases? Are those passed on? How are they counterweighted? Um, you know, prejudices, just simple, you know, is the right person doing the right thing, I suppose. So it's going to be quite fascinating to, A, find out if the IPCC let them come in to do this, and B, if they actually find out anything interesting and possibly post back into the system to say, IPCC, this is how you could be doing this 10 times better. So we don't know yet the outcomes of this because they haven't even had sign-off for this project. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It is, it's, it's an application at the moment, but the IPCR, I think the reason it's made it into the news is they're taking it quite seriously. So uh, I think they appreciate that they could work better together. So um, why not, I suppose? But it's obviously confidentiality issues and all manner of you know sort of privacy and security that the IPCC, I'm sure, will not want people to get out um, but, you know, it, it's, uh, it looks like at the moment like they may well say yes. Mm. Now, David, up until this point, you've had your serious face on because we have not been talking about Jurassic Park. But we're about to kind of do that a little bit uh, because this week in the news, a mosquito made it into the headlines that's been found with its blood meal also fossilised. Absolutely, yeah. In, in the actual film version, I suppose, the mosquito was in a big lump of amber. This isn't quite the case. It was found in a, in a sort of shale uh, fossil. From Montana, it's 46 million years old. It's got a bona fide blood meal uh, inside it, which scientists have, have now sort of uh, proved by finding some places of iron and, uh, and porphyrin inside it. They don't know what animal it came from. It, most likely it was, it, it was some sort of vertebrate. The team who found it at the US uh, National Museum of Natural History I think it's, it's the oldest blood-sucking animal yet found. Obviously, at 46 million years, it is pretty old indeed. Um, so it, it's an interesting find. I think that's the, the kind of first thing that they've been able to identify, the blood inside it for the first time, which is a kind of uh, has been very hard to do. They had they suspected there was blood in it, but they haven't been able to prove it until now. But they're not thinking, presumably, of extracting this blood of this vertebrate, whatever it was, and turning it into a theme park. Alas, the DNA had completely degraded, so it was only places of these molecules that they found as opposed to the actual DNA. David Ray, thank you so much for coming in. More news available and more details on all of those stories at nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Join us next time when we'll be finding out the truth about T-Rex. I'm Kerry Smith. Thanks for listening. Listener.